Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson celebrated his second anniversary as Tory leader on Friday, but probably not in the way he might have hoped. Hold up at Checkers in Isolation one of the hundreds of thousands of Britons hit by the pandemic. We'll be moving to a system of testing rather than isolation. But until then, I just must remind everybody that isolation is a vital tool of our defence against the disease. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, George Parker. Seb's on holiday, allegedly, I think I spotted him at the Spectator party on Thursday night, nursing a glass of bubbly and looking very relaxed. Now, in what should have been a big final week of term at Westminster, Boris Johnson had to abandon plans for a big announcement on social care reform. Instead, Tory MPs were left with their heads spinning. And it wasn't just the usual round of summer drinks parties, as ministers tried to come up with a series of exemptions to the COVID isolation rules. Meanwhile, Johnson opened a new front in his ongoing war of attrition with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol, a deal he signed in 2019 and which he and his Brexit minister, David Frost, claim is a threat to the peace process and is tearing at the fabric of the union. Who could possibly have anticipated that? We'll be talking about the government's plan to rewrite the Northern Ireland Protocol and the EU's response later with the FT's Peter Foster and Lord Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's former chief of staff, who himself tried to resolve the apparently insoluble Northern Ireland conundrum that bedevils UK-EU relations after Brexit. But first, let's turn to the pandemic and the pingdemic, which looks set to dominate our lives over the summer. Talk of Freedom Day has quickly evaporated, as 600,000 people in one week were told to isolate. Ministers threatened to introduce COVID passports and speculation swirled that other restrictions may have to be brought back before the summer is out. I'm joined by Sarah Neville, our health editor, and Jim Picard, our chief political correspondent, to talk about all this. Welcome back, Sarah and Jim. Thanks, George. Good to be here. Hi, Anne. Now, can I ask if either of you have been pinged or what you're doing to avoid getting the dreaded COVID tap on the shoulder? Jim, I know you've been dreading a ping because you're heading up to the Latitude Festival. Yeah, I've managed to dodge it though so far. Fingers crossed. There seems to be quite a few people I know who have COVID though. I mean, it is amongst us, isn't it? Two of our FT colleagues are sick at the moment. Um, there's someone I know where I live, you know, a friend who, who is currently sick with it and she was double jabbed. And of course, Keir Starmer was wandering through the press gallery after PMQs on Wednesday and then literally 20 minutes later had to self-isolate, didn't he? Yeah, he was in our office. Uh, Sarah, what have you been doing to avoid the ping? Well, I don't have the app, so I can't be pinged to that extent, but I have had a brush with it because I went out for my first meal in a restaurant a couple of weeks ago. Two days later, the friend I was with called me rather anxiously to say that she had been pinged and she'd done a lateral flow test. She was fine. And in fact, she and her husband worked out the reason they'd been pinged was that their next door neighbour had COVID. They hadn't actually had any face-to-face contact with him, but they figured out that 
because he's in the flat next door, that they'd literally been sort of pinged through the wall, as it were, which does, you know, show the extraordinary sensitivity of the app. Yes, indeed. Lots of stories like that are circulating around the country. Now, let's go on to the main topic of the week, which is COVID and the government's response to it. Ministers have been desperately juggling the need to keep people isolating if they may be infected with COVID. They want to stop the summer wave of the virus turning into a tsunami and trying to stop the country's economy grinding to a halt because of chronic staff shortages. This was Environment Secretary George Eustace on the BBC's Today programme on Friday. Well, what we've uh, done at the moment is identify close to 500 key sites, and that consists of around 170 supermarket distribution depots, and then several hundred of the largest food manufacturers as well. But we're trying to, in doing this, have a, a proportionate intervention that means the arteries of our food supply chain uh, keep moving, that we can continue to get food uh, to, onto the supermarket shelves, but not to have an exemption that is um, so large that it starts to undermine uh, the purpose of what we're doing. Yes, I think ministers are worried that uh, seeing pictures of empty supermarket shelves might prompt a stampede to the shops and food shortages. Uh, Jim, what's the scale of the disruption so far? What are people worried about? So it's one of these things where if, if you were to read the front pages of, of Britain's newspapers every morning, you would start to get quite alarmed because, as usual, people have found the worst possible examples of shelves being empty and that kind of thing. And of course, when that happens, when we all get overexcited about a few empty shelves, there's a danger that it could become, you know, self-fulfilling as as happened a year ago at the start of the pandemic. I think for now, you know, I'm not one to understate like how alarmed business are. I mean, business is literally tearing their hair out. We've got companies with shortages of 10, 20, 30 percent. You know, I did the story last week about Nissan having no fewer than 720 workers on the Sunderland factory who were self-isolating. There, there is some disruption to, to train services. There is some disruption to supply chains. You've got some factories who are having to reduce their shifts. You know, things are holding together. But, you know, I, I think if we didn't have this August 16th point where the government is changing the rules so that you don't have to self-isolate anymore if you've had two jabs, I think if we didn't have that coming up in less than a month, then business would be basically storming barricades of, of Westminster trying to get the politicians to sort this out. I mean, they are they are very unhappy. So Jim mentioned the August 16th date, the moment when this isolation regime will end for the whole country if you've been double jabbed. Why don't ministers just bring forward that date? They do seem, yes, reluctant to do that. I think some of it is simply to allow more people to get jabbed because, you know, this is keeping to the August the 16th date. That is one sort of control mechanism, you know, to wait until then to lift these self-isolation rules to allow, you know, significantly more, particularly young people to actually get, you know, at least a first jab and obviously more slightly older people to get a second jab. So I think they do see it as quite important to hold out for that additional, what is it now, about three weeks, I suppose, because certainly this issue of the 18 to 34s in particular, not coming forward in anything like the volume, as it were, that older folk have is, you know, starting to become increasingly concerning to both health leaders and ministers. Yeah. So, Jim, the government now has to to try to get around this, has set out a series of exemptions to the isolation rules. Um, Can you briefly explain what they've done and will that help to sort things out? Yeah. I mean, so there was confusion on this. There's been a lot of confusion. We haven't even started talking about what happened at the weekend when you had Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak 
you know, planning to avoid self-isolation, which would have set a terrible example. And within two and a half hours, they were forced to back down. You know, the, we've also had confusion with junior ministers giving advice, suggesting companies can just ignore the ping if they want. And they were slapped down by number 10 on Monday morning. And then later on Monday, Boris Johnson sort of suggested that there would be this list of exemptions for the most critical workers who the economy, society couldn't do without. And then it all got very confusing because there was a point, I think, Tuesday, where they said, well, actually, we're not going to produce this list. But what you can do is you, you business and industry, can come to us, the government, and demand exemptions for your critical workers. And there'll be this kind of subjective, make it up as you go along system. And then I think they did finally come up with, with some more details. Um, but George, you were on this when you it seemed to come quite late, didn't it? Wasn't it nine o'clock in the evening that they finally said that, that the food supply staff would, would not have to quarantine? Yeah, it was very late. I think they, I was starting to suspect they were timing the release of this list for when everyone was at the spectator party, to be honest, Jim. <laughs> and, and, you know, they talked about they want to keep it to the minimum, but, you know, just under this supermarket depot worker supply scheme, they're, they're expecting about 10,000 people. I mean, what we have to remember is that for all the kind of tabloid horror about the pandemic and, you know, FT coverage about the pandemic, you know, our, our readers are obviously very unhappy about this. There is a reason for it. It is the, the system the government has plumped for as a way to keep the economy open while preventing the NHS being overwhelmed. You know, we, let's not lose sight of why they're trying to do this. But I think people are realising that it's quite a blunt instrument, this NHS app. And ministers have talked about fine-tuning it to make it a bit less sensitive, you know, not, as Sarah was saying, pinging people's neighbours through the walls. And we don't seem to have seen any evidence that that's imminent, have we? You, you've summarised the chaos really well there, Jim, of this policy. I, I was um, speaking to someone who was saying that when the Prime Minister announced on Monday that there was going to be this list of uh, critical industries, uh, there was no policy behind it at all. It was just something the Prime Minister said and that ministers and officials have been scrambling all week to try and match a policy that was consistent with what the words that came out of the Prime Minister's mouth. So it's you know, very much been policy, policy being made on the hoof there. But the one bit of bright news, um, Sarah, if you, I don't know whether you think this is bright news or not, is that week on week, there was a dip in the number of cases, which I think, as a sort of a lay observer, this surprised me slightly. Is that a cause for optimism? I think, sadly, not at the moment. I think we would need to see that establishing itself as a trend in a much more sustained way than we have. I mean, as you say, the human instinct is to feel a slight surge of elation, you know, noticing that the cases on Thursday were actually lower than the cases a week earlier. But I think, you know, there could be various reasons for that. One could be, we reported earlier this week, and I know you asked uh, Boris Johnson about it at the number 10 press conference, George, the issue of lack of availability of PCR tests and also longer processing times. I've been told that the actual lab capacity is currently probably insufficient, particularly when there's likely to be a huge surge in demand for tests as the reopening, the July the 19th reopening increasingly has an impact. So I think we, you know, we'd obviously all love to see this happen, but I think it's too early to uh, to sort of break out the, the bubbly yet. We, we did in fact see this back in September, which is a rather ominous parallel where we did see some falls during that month. But of course, ultimately, we went on to have the very worst wave of the entire pandemic. So um, to not uh, not too much 
cause for premature optimism, I would say. I know there are different uh, scenarios here, of course, but when do ministers broadly expect the, the third wave to peak over the summer? I think the general estimates are slightly vague, but they're between mid-August and mid-September. So, you know, in keeping, I suppose, with the huge amount of uncertainty about the current situation, there's also quite a wide sort of funnel of uncertainty about when it's going to peak. The The other thing that scientists and, and medics think is that what we might wind up seeing is a plateauing, quite a sort of lengthy plateauing, rather than, you know, a peak and then a very sharp drop-off or, you know, a sustained drop-off, I should say. So, yes, I think, you know, sort of, sort of huge uncertainty. I mean, quite a lot will obviously depend on you know, whether we get another variant, which of course is the huge concern that preoccupies policymakers. We still have, you know, significant amount of the population, certainly not double jabbed or even single jabbed in, in many cases, which can be a breeding ground for the sort of new variant, which in all our nightmares proves resistant to the vaccines. And also we don't know how much the government is going to succeed in boosting vaccine uptake. They are you know embarking on various campaigns, particularly amongst the younger generation. Boris Johnson, of course, announced on uh, Freedom Day that probably a young person who wants to go to a nightclub is going to have to produce proof of double vaccination, and possibly it's slightly unclear even uh, middle-aged and uh, elderly people who wish to attend the Conservative Party conference might wind up having to do the same. So it's. That certainly, I think, was partly intended by ministers to be a real spur to get younger people to get the jab. But um, I don't know whether or not it's going to work. We'll, we'll see in the next few weeks. Yeah, sorry, I was speaking to one minister who said they were, that they were inspired by what Macron had done in France and sort of coercing people, younger people especially, to, to get vaccinated by telling them they wouldn't be able to go to a cafe or a bar otherwise. Jim, just finally to you, and Sarah touched on this, the, the spectre of restrictions being reintroduced in the autumn. You know, Sarah mentioned COVID passports becoming mandatory for nightclub entry and maybe even for other other venues as well. What do you think the political risks are for Boris Johnson having gone through Freedom Day on July the 19th if, come the autumn, we see restrictions being reintroduced? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very real threat if you look at other countries like Israel and Holland. They've had some reversals of, of some of their relaxations and the same could quite easily happen here and Boris Johnson made completely clear didn't he throughout that whole setting out of the roadmap that it would be irreversible that was the word he used um we've seen a couple of ministers since saying <clears throat> cough cough actually uh, maybe we could have to put a couple back on I think that uh, Sajid Javid the health secretary has, has been among those who said there could be some more but I think the wider picture is that you know, around the world a lot of countries are watching what's happening in the UK uh with some skepticism you know, of course, the argument here is that we have a huge number of jabbed people and double jabbed people. And if we don't do it now, then whenever will we escape from lockdown? But, you know, there are, there are people asking some quite serious questions. Uh, Mike Ryan, Director of Emergencies at the World Health Organization, calling the British plan epidemiological stupidity. So you've just got to really hope for the sake of, of the country, I suppose, that, that number 10 is getting this right. Sarah and Jim, thanks very much. And Jim, have a great time at Latitude. Thanks. Now on to Brexit, as Boris Johnson set out plans to rewrite a treaty that he agreed in late 2019. 
which has only been in force for seven months. Needless to say, trust between London and Brussels is not high. This was Johnson's Brexit minister, David Frost, setting out the new policy in the House of Lords. Put very simply, we cannot go on as we are. It is clear that the circumstances exist to justify the use of Article 16. Nevertheless, my Lords, we have concluded that it's not the right moment to do so. Instead, we see an opportunity to proceed differently, to find a new path, to seek to agree with the EU through negotiations a new balance in our arrangements covering Northern Ireland to the benefit of all. I'm joined by Peter Foster and Gavin Barwell to discuss this initiative, how it's likely to be received and what happens next. Peter, can you explain what exactly happened this week? Well, George, you know, six months into the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, which you'll remember, uh, we agreed to avoid a border on the island of Ireland so that all goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would pass a border in the Irish Sea. Six months into that process, David Frost effectively announced that he wanted a root and branch reform of the entire protocol. He wants to remove the remit of the ECJ. He wants an honesty box system, essentially, for goods travelling from Great Britain into Northern Ireland that are not at risk of going into the Republic. Uh, He wants to end any kind of uh, export declaration on goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. He wants to rewrite Article 10 of the protocol, which is the bit that covers state aid that Brexit has really hated because it, in theory, gave the European Commission the right to rule over UK state aid decisions if they impacted the goods market in Northern Ireland. So right across the piece, David Frost proposed a reboot of the protocol, not a not a rejigging, not a sandpapering, a fundamental reboot of the protocol. Now, I guess we can discuss what he really wants, you know, whether this is a big opening gambit to get something less. But on paper, this was a complete and utter reboot. And briefly, how's it gone down? Like a bag of sick, really. You know, as you would expect, you know, a lot of these things I think uh, David Frost would well know are not acceptable to the European Union. That said, there are member states across Europe, George, who recognise the protocol has big problems, recognise that, as Frost said, it's the running saw that undoes the relationship at the moment. And so I think the European Union is going to keep its powder dry. It will probably increase some legal proceedings, but it won't give up entirely. It will wait and see whether Frost is prepared to accept some quite significant, potentially, reforms to the protocol rather than seeking to unwrite the whole thing. Kevin Barwell, you grappled with the problem of the status of Northern Ireland in Brexit. Wasn't all this entirely predictable? Yes. I mean, I think there's been a prolonged attempt in British politics to deny the fact that there are basically three choices here. Uh, You can have a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. You can have some kind of a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Or the UK can align with certain EU rules that are checked when goods move across a border. And there's been no evidence at any point since we voted to leave the European Union that there is any other solution to this problem. But large chunks of our political class have chosen to believe that there's some kind of fantastical solution out there. It is negotiable. There isn't. Do you think Boris Johnson negotiated the Northern Ireland Protocol in good faith? Or did he intend to wriggle out of it all along? Sadly, uh, I think that they intended to wriggle out of it all along. I think the evidence is pretty strong. Uh, in that direction. The initial strategy, clearly, when he became Prime Minister, was to prorogue Parliament 
to threaten to leave without a deal in the hope that that would force a significant shift in the EU negotiating position. And a combination of resistance in Parliament and the courts killed off that strategy. And at that point, the strategy turned to holding a general election to change the parliamentary arithmetic. And I think the judgment that they made was, we've got a much better chance of getting a good majority in a general election if we have an oven-ready Brexit deal, to coin a phrase, and therefore the approach switched to get a deal at all costs, even if that means agreeing some things we don't like, and then we'll see if we can find a way out of it down the line. And I think the, coming back to your introduction and the, the issue of trust, which is fundamental, I think, in terms of what progress can now be made, the problem is the EU has, it doesn't really matter what I think Boris Johnson was planning to do all along, but the EU, I think, have come to the conclusion that that was the plan all along. So Peter, what happens now and when's the next deadline? Well, the next deadline is the end of September when the grace periods expire. Now, David Frost has asked for a standstill in order that the EU and the UK can try and negotiate some better arrangement. So the first question, George, will be, does the EU grant this standstill so that we all say, look, there's no grace periods to expire. We'll live with the status quo until we've got to a better arrangement. The difficulty for the EU is that if it gives that to the UK, which in an ideal world it would, it'd just be sensible to cool the whole thing off, it, it's essentially rewarding what it would see as bad behaviour, gangster politics. And so it's going to have to decide whether it wants to do that. Because you remember a few months ago, or a few weeks ago even, they agreed another grace period on sausages, you know, the, the infamous chilled meats. But they didn't get anything for that. After that period, Frost went away and then produced this plan, which is essentially to demand to rewrite the protocol. So the EU has to think about not destabilising the process further, but at the same time, not rewarding bad behaviour. So that'll be the first question. Do we get the standstill? After that, we'll see whether the two sides can find a middle ground and indeed whether the Brits are really serious about finding a middle ground or is this all just a pretext to trigger that override clause, Article 16, and, and seek something more fundamental? Gamboa, do you think David Frost was right to say this has to be sorted out to reset UK-EU relations? I think that he is right to say that the protocol is causing some significant issues. I think it is fair to say that that is the main bit of grit in the relationship. It's not the only one. We've, we've seen over the last few days a row about Gibraltar. But of course, from the EU's point of view, the thing he's complaining about is the thing that he negotiated. This isn't the same protocol that was in the original draft of the withdrawal agreement that, that Theresa signed up to. So there is a huge amount of frustration on their part, as Peter was alluding, that they've got the UK come, government coming back just a few months after negotiating something, now wanting to negotiate something else. And what confidence can they have that they will stick with any revised deal? And Gavin, how, how do you think this is going to end? I, I'm pretty pessimistic, short to medium term. You've got to factor into this all the complexities of Northern Ireland politics as well. I saw Geoffrey Donaldson yesterday suggesting that Northern Ireland ministers might unilaterally decide not to enforce protocol if the UK government didn't get uh, a significant enough change. And we've obviously got elections in Northern Ireland next year at the moment, given the polling. There are significant risks there, I think, that Sinn Féin will top the poll and then will the devolved government continue if, if there has to be a Sinn Féin first minister. So I'm pretty pessimistic about the short to medium term outlook. I'm a little bit more optimistic longer term that a way can be found around this because the one thing I think we can say with confidence is that Brexit has not changed the UK's foreign policy significantly on climate change, on China, on Russia, on Iran. The UK and the EU remain very well aligned. And I think ultimately, 
the fact that we have the same interests, face the same threats, see the world in very similar ways should lead to an outbreak of common sense in terms of the trading relationship. But I'm not that optimistic that that's going to happen uh, in the foreseeable future. Peter, you followed this uh, sort of on a weekly basis. Do you think a compromise is possible or is there another big bust up coming? I think a compromise is possible. You know, the obvious thing is that the European Union does agree that the at-risk approach is applied to this business of SBS, the the agri-food checks, because that's the big issue here, George. Most of the delays at the border, most of the checks are about agri-food. And we've refused to align to the EU's rules. We've refused to do this Swiss VEP deal, even though I hasten to add last year, the DUP begged the government to do that deal and it refused. I mean, one thing to remember here is that not only did Frost and Johnson negotiate this protocol, but they then negotiated a trade deal that was super hard. And the harder the trade deal, the higher the border necessarily in the Irish Sea to protect the EU single market from goods coming from GB. So, you know, this is a, a, a problem that was, you know, exacerbated by the decision to do a super hard trade deal. But there is a solution if the British side is prepared to accept, you know, not the end of the protocol, but much, but fewer checks, and the EU is prepared to take a more at-risk approach to these agri-food products. The trouble is that, you know, right now, trust is incredibly low, and, and that would be a difficult negotiation when trust was, was high, uh, given the legal requirements of the EU. But there is a middle ground here. It's about whether everybody can step back and get to that middle ground. Because, you know, at the moment, the British government's policy seems to be more hardline, ironically, than the DUP's policy. You know, I think Geoffrey Donaldson wants stability, give him a chance to bed in before the elections next May. You know, some of the stuff on the ECJ, George, and the Article 10, it's actually driven by the ERG, by the by the hardline Tories, who feel that the protocol was a great affront to British sovereignty because it leaves Northern Ireland in the regulatory orbit of the EU. And if that's the problem, then we really are back to first principles. And as Gavin says, in the short term, that leads to a very, very choppy negotiation. Peter and Gavin, thanks for joining us. And that's all for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews and ratings. Bain's Politics was presented by me, his holiday cover, George Parker, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Next time, and in the first of our summer specials, Seb Payne speaks to the leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Anna Sawa, about countering Nicola Sturgeon, how he intends to revive his party's prospects and leadership in lockdown. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.